This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And now we bring you the first part of my three-part conversation with Seth Godin, who says in his bio that he's an author, entrepreneur, and most of all, a teacher. He's the author of one of the most popular blogs in the world, and you can find it at Seth's.blog, as well as 19 best-selling books, including one of my personal favorites, Tribes. I started off by reading Seth one of his own quotes. I made a decision a very, very long time ago, probably when I was 18 or 20, when I said, look, there's a whole bunch of work that I'm just not willing to do. Here's Seth on this statement and how it affected his own personal story. One of the most important stories we tell is the story we tell ourselves. And it's easy to see people around you who are telling themselves a story that's getting in the way of where they want to go. And I've been fortunate from an early age to be able to see the stories that I was telling myself. And if you're telling yourself a story that's getting in the way, that's a problem. Uh, I had a summer job probably in the late 1970s, where I was maintaining an IBM 360 mainframe computer. And it was important work. The factory couldn't work without it. And I was just a kid, 18 or 19 years old. But I realized that this was far outside of my passion, that what it took to look through the manual to decipher what the person at IBM had decided to say when they really meant to say something else getting every detail right and sitting in a room for nine hours in a row, I said, yeah, I could probably make a living doing this, but this is not going to be the thing that encourages me to do the work I want to do. And from that moment, I said, well, if I'm going to do a different kind of work, I'm going to have to be a pro at it. You don't get to do the work you want to do just because you want to. There's a price to be paid. You have to earn the chance to show up and do that work. And you say a professional, and in the end, the, the work of being a professional is not really something that educators are concerned about anymore, let alone craftsmanship. And I think the two, craftsmanship, professionalism, have a lot in common. Talk about those things. I think that educators, frontline teachers, are heroes. They are doing their best with one or two hands tied behind their backs. But there is a bureaucratic system in place, an industrial training bureaucracy that exists for reasons that most parents aren't aware of, because parents haven't asked the question hard enough, what is school for? And until we acknowledge what school is for, we're going to keep training people to be compliant cogs in an industrial system. That's what we needed 50 years ago, for sure. We definitely needed people who would go to the factory and that factory could be an insurance company, doesn't matter, go to the factory and do what they were told, that obedience and reliability were paramount. And so if you look at how we process kids through school, public school, private school, doesn't matter, we process them in batches. If they're defective, we fail them and put them back for reprocessing. And we test them to make sure they meet the standards. And we rank them. And we somehow applaud people who are good at taking tests, even though after you're 25 years old, you're never going to take another test. We have trained you to do things we don't need anymore. And I think we need to rewire the story of school. School should be about learning, not about education. Because learning 
is about enrollment, wanting to go on a journey, being willing to be serially incompetent on your path from here to there, because that's the only way we learn. We learn that we are not good at it, and then we get good at it. So when we think about the things that really matter, whether it's knowing how to ride a bike or drive a car, or whether it's knowing how to lead people and do work that's important, none of those things were taught to us by the educational system, and they were all things we learned how to do. Indeed. And David McCullough told our audience a story about the Wright brothers that was so fascinating. They learned by doing. They built bicycles, and they learned the problem of balance. And then they went to Kitty Hawk, and they tried to solve the problem of flight. And they learned by doing. They weren't PhDs. They weren't world governments, all of them on the chase to flight. And they did it out of a random and deep curiosity. Talk about that word curiosity and the word hobbyist, because I think the two have an interesting link, and we talk a lot about it on this show. Sure. So curiosity involves acknowledging ignorance. Curiosity isn't just the joy of finding things out. It's realizing that you don't know everything. And one of the things that I have built my career around is if something is working in the world, and I don't know why it's working, I have a hard time walking away from that problem. Why is it that people are waiting in line to buy an overpriced t-shirt from this store? Why is it that some people see the situation and do one thing and others do something else? Why is it that the Mac was behind the PC and then it wasn't? Can we explain it? If we can't explain it, just saying, well, it's a mystery and moving on doesn't really work in terms of us learning anything. And so my focus has been figuring out how to understand the story that people tell themselves when they make decisions. That's my curiosity. Richard Feynman's curiosity was, how does physics work? How does the universe work? What happens when particles are very big or very small? And there are too many people who are afraid of learning and would rather just do what they were told and accept things at face value. And in that moment, if you are not curious, you're just going to accept what someone told you to do because that's what you learned to do in school. And I think we can tell ourselves a different story. And then I want to talk about professionals, hobbyists, and amateurs. If you are a professional, what it means is you are making a promise to your client, to your customer, to the people you serve. And a key part of that promise is that you will show up even when you don't feel like it. You will do your best possible work even when you're not in the mood. A hobbyist, on the other hand, works for his or her own satisfaction. And in that case, if you don't feel like it, don't do it. Bring joy to your hobby. Do it for yourself because you can. And an amateur is somebody who isn't willing to put in the hard work to be a hobbyist or a professional. An amateur shows up when they feel like it, ships it when they feel like it, isn't proud of the work. We don't need your amateur work, but there's nothing wrong with you having a hobby. Many of the people in the arts would be way happier if they acknowledged that the arts were their hobby and stopped trying to sell out to make a living doing it. Indeed. And let's go back to what is school for, because I think it's such an important question. You did an exercise with an audience at a TED Talk, and you asked them to raise their hands, and then you asked them to raise them a little higher, and they complied both times. Talk about that. Well, actually, the key to the thing is, the first request is raise your hand as high as you can. 
and everyone raises their hand because they're good at complying. And then I say, now raise it higher. And everyone is able to. And then they laugh. And they laugh because they remember that I said the first time, raise it as high as you can. And no one did the first time because the industrial system we grew up under exploits the worker. That's its key. That's the way entrepreneurs make money. If you run a factory, get more from the worker than you paid for. That's the only way to come out ahead. And so when we're on the soccer team, we hold a little bit back because we know the coach is just going to ask for a little bit more. And when we're in the sales division, we hold a little bit back because otherwise they'll just raise our quota. And holding a little bit back is built in. However, playwrights, painters, singers, they don't hold anything back. Playwrights don't say, I got a great line. I know, I'll save it for the next play. They put it in this play. They don't say, how little can I get away with? They say, how much am I able to do? And if we can figure out how to approach whatever work we have signed up to do as a professional and approach it with how much can I put on this plate, it turns out our life gets a lot better. You're deeply involved in this project called altmba.com. Talk about what you were after launching that project. You didn't know it was going to happen. What happened? So five years ago, I looked at the state of online education because most of it is terrible. The typical dropout rate of a voluntary online course online is 97%. Try to imagine what would happen if there was a school where 100 people came to class the first day and three were left on the last day. So I set out to create a chance for people to level up, an intensive 30-day online program that really got to the heart of what it means to become a leader And we have a 97% completion rate. Only 3% of the people don't finish. We have no lectures, no videos. We have a lot of one-on-one coaching. We have groups. It's a rewiring of our habits and our approach to how we're going to be in the world. And when I ran it the first time, it was an experiment because I wanted to see if I could upend our expectations for education and learning. And we're now running it for the 40th time. We've had nearly 5,000 grads in 77 countries around the world. And we've expanded it to a a number of workshops at akimbo.com, all about this idea that if you are enrolled in learning, you will actually learn more by doing, doing work about you and your stuff and doing it together with others than you could ever learn by watching a bunch of videos. And we are in danger as we move into this online space of turning education online into a consumption of nothing but rote. And that's a bad idea because that's not how you learn. You learn by doing things surrounded by people who are confident and are giving you a foundation to go to the next level. Great performance in school leads to happiness and success. You call that one of the two big myths in American education. Talk about that. Well, What we say to a kid when they're the most impressionable, when they are under the most leverage from adults, what we say to them for 10 or 15 years is, how was your day? How did you do on the test? Are you doing okay in school? Congratulations, you got an A. Oh, look, you made it to the next year. You're going to graduate. You can go to the placement office now. Your resume is filled with lots of gold stars. Over and over again, That is the message. And then 
people leave and they discover the deal's not valid anymore, that maybe it used to be you could comply your way into a 40-year career with good benefits and respect and dignity, but not anymore. Now, the prizes, the good jobs, the upside are going to people who weren't necessarily good at school, but who are good at life, who are good at solving interesting problems, who are good at leading, who are good at connecting the others, who are good at figuring out what to do next instead of doing what's written in the manual. Because as soon as we write it down in the manual, we can find someone cheaper than you to do it. I'm stunned when I go to the big box stores. And right next to the cash register is this thing that looks like an ATM machine. And it's actually how you apply for a job there. You use the touch screen to answer 10 questions, and then boom, they hire you without you even looking a human in the eye. Here's the thing about jobs like that. If they're easy to get, they're probably not worth getting. Because once you're treated like a cog in the system, a piece in the machine, don't expect that that's going to change anytime soon. We need a lot more people who are linchpins, who are maybe not exactly a perfect fit for the org chart, but are exactly the people we need to solve the next interesting problem. Indeed. Myth number two, great parents have kids who produce great performance in schools. Talk about that. Yeah, I love that sticker on the back of the car. Who's the sticker for exactly? The one that names the Ivy League institution that your kid got into. That having raised a couple teenagers, having been active in the public school community, you can see the anxiety. It starts early. It starts as early as the age of seven. At the Blue School in New York City, which is a private school, they don't make kids do anything that they don't want to do. You can't say you can't play. That the entire model of kindergarten, first grade, and second grade is let's create kids who are socially adjusted, and then they will find a thirst for learning. And as young as seven and eight, parents start taking their kids out of that school because they're afraid they won't get into a famous college. Because a famous college says a lot about your ability as a parent. It means you did a good job. However, famous colleges, there's no evidence whatsoever that they create productive or happy human beings. One study that I saw showed that people who get into Harvard and don't go are just as happy and just as successful as people who get into Harvard and do go. That, in fact, it's our attitude, our posture, our willingness to be generous that contributes to where we end up and that says something about our parents, not whether some semi-random classist system at a famous college got us in or didn't get us in. I want to talk to you about uh, a quote that David Mamet, the great writer, theatrical writer and screenwriter, told us on the show about acting schools. He said, the teachers there pretend to teach, the students pretend to learn. If you want to learn how to act, Get in front of an audience and act. If you want to learn how to direct, the audience will teach you both, and you'll become a professional over time. And don't have a backup plan. And so that was an interesting advice to young acting students. Uh, Talk about your comment or comment on what Mamet just said. So many things Mamet said back in the day are truly profound, and I agree with 80% of what you just said. Uh, The thing is, if you want to lead, lead. If you want to teach, teach. If you want to be a writer, Well, here's a keyboard. Start writing. Who's stopping you? This idea that you need to get picked is nuts. You got to pick yourself. 
And it is worse in acting because of the whole audition mindset. You know, I, I've spoken a few times at Juilliard, one of the great music schools, and most of the time the audience ends up in tears because I point out that they've been trained for decades to play the music as written and no one wants to buy the music as written because we already have it on CD. That what we've got to figure out how to do is be present for the audience. And so I say to these folks, when was the last time you did a gig? And they're like, well, we're too busy practicing. I said, look outside, there's New York City. Take your violin, go stand outside, put a bucket in front of you and see if someone's going to throw money in the bucket. Go perform. You don't have to perform outdoors, but go do that work. And where Mamet and I disagree about this point, though, is you have to have a backup plan because resilience gives us the confidence to lean out of the boat. That if you felt like every time you leaned out of the boat, you were likely to fall into the water and drown, you're less likely to lean out of the boat. That's why good sailors wear life jackets, because they understand it lets them be more aggressive, not less. So what it means to have a backup plan is to say, one day, I'm not going to be a 24-year-old cute actor who gets cast for this. One day, I'm going to be 44. And the resilient path forward is to learn to write the screenplays. Because if I write the screenplays, I'll be able to cast myself. Another way forward is I could pick myself to have a podcast. Because once my podcast has 100,000 regular listeners, no one can audition me ever again. Because I found my smallest viable audience, and now I have resilience. So, no, you don't need a backup plan that says, I can wait tables. But yes, you need a backup plan that says, the world is going to change, and that's okay with me. And the word resilience is one you use a lot. What does it mean to you for folks listening? How do parents and even friends and peers engender this quality called resilience? So let's think about the story you are teaching your kids. If the story you teach your kids is that we are measuring you based on a grade someone else gave you, and the story is, of course, you're going to get an A, then when it doesn't work, brittleness shows up. Because whose fault is this? Well, it might be the fault of the teacher who didn't teach you right. It might be the fault of you because you're a fraud. Or it might be anything in between. But none of this is about the resilience of, I have failed before and I will fail again. That every single kid who learned how to walk, learned how to walk by falling again and again. And then helicopter parents show up and say, well, that's the last time you're ever going to fail. Now we will insulate you from the world. The alternative is to build a practice for your kids from a very young age of failure is normal. Failure is part of the deal. If you are failing, it means you are on to something. If you learn from failing, that's even better because that means you're not going to fail at this thing next time. And so the short version is the person who fails the most wins. Because if you fail once dramatically and you're out of the game, you don't win. You don't get to fail again. But if you can figure out how to fail and fail and fail and fail on your way to not failing by making resilient choices, then you're on your way to being a professional. And so a lot of this has to do with the parents themselves and not allowing their kids to fail and protecting them. We just did a book called Lincoln's Greatest Case. It was about Abraham Lincoln's remarkable work representing the railroads against the steamboat industry. He had never gone to law school, and he had developed this practicum of knowledge by actually being a lawyer and failing and wrote about it often. That Thank goodness I worked in the law office where my depositions weren't very good. I got better. My interrogatories got better. 
And it was all about the professionalism and the craft. But again, there were no law schools like little guilds determining who or whom doesn't practice or your LSAT wasn't up to snuff. One of America's great lawyers, one of America's great presidents had little formal training, except that he had the best training in the world, Seth. He learned by doing. He learned by doing and by doing better. Uh, My wife was a lawyer for a long time. And 15 years into her career, people were still asking, where'd you go to law school and how'd you do on the LSATs? And they do that because people need to be put into a bucket so that we can stereotype them, so we know how to treat them. And this gets in the way of diversity. It gets in the way of interesting ways to solve problems. And in the United States, we know that people who graduate from a four-year college have dramatically better economic opportunity than people who don't. Part of that is survivor bias. Part of that is a selection process that picks people who are likely to make more money early in their life and streamlining them forward. But part of it is we're busy putting people into buckets. And one of the things that the Internet is changing is now you can create a body of work, that the story you put in front of people doesn't have to be, I went to Princeton. The story you can put in front of people is, take a look at my YouTube videos. It can be, take a look at how I transformed this organization. It can be, take a look at the money I raised for this charity. If we can be judged on our work, it's way easier to bootstrap our way forward. You have a, a remarkable quote I want to read you. It, it comes from a, a blog, but I, I want to see if you recognize it. And it's a, a piece titled The World's Worst Boss. That would mm. be you, you wrote. Even if you're not self-employed, your boss is you. You manage your career, your day, your response. You manage how you sell your services, your education, and the way you talk to yourself. Talk about this short piece that you wrote on your blog, because I I keep it by my side. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. You know, if your boss called you in the middle of the night a couple times a week, waking you up and screaming at you about how badly you did that day, you would probably quit. And yet, so many of us wake up in the middle of the night with that voice in our head. If your boss said, you don't need to learn anything else ever again because you're 25 years old, well, he or she has just ruined your career. But people do that all the time and say, I don't need to learn anything else. I'm done with school. That what we do with that voice in our head is we treat ourselves poorly and we take really bad advice from it. That what it means to be a really good boss is that you are trusting and empathic and supportive and you have high standards and you make good decisions on behalf of the people that you lead and manage. And if the voice in your head isn't doing those things, Maybe you need a new boss because fixing that is the first step to getting to where you want to go. Let's talk about managing choices in time. There are so many ways you can go, so many decisions you have to make. You say it's not the work as much as it is deciding to do the work and deciding what work not to do. Talk about choices, managing them. There are so many. Right. So this is one of the key lessons in the Alt-MBA. Everybody gets 24 hours every day. That is the true leveler. Every single person gets the same amount of time. How will you choose to use it? Other than those 24 hours, what do you own? What are your assets? Well, what you own might be a machine. That's definitely capitalist thinking. But what you probably own is a reputation. What you probably own are a bunch of skills. Which ones are you using right now? Which one 
will you use tomorrow? How do you get more of them? Well, the way we get more trust, more authority, and more skill is by investing our time. These are decisions, decisions our boss, us, has to make about how we will spend our time. So every single time you go home at 6.30 at night and turn on Netflix and leave it on for four hours, you just made a decision about what to invest in. You made a decision about what to build or not build. And allocating our time to create assets so that we can be generous and make change happen, that's under each of our control. No one taught us how to do it in school, for sure. But it's something we need to learn. I'll leave with this. You write about the benefits of writing. And I would actually add the benefits of just a creative life, no matter what you're doing for a living. Now talk about why you talk about the benefits of writing and the creative life. So I've written a blog post every day for more than 7,000 days. They're all free. They're at Seth's.blog. I think everybody should have a daily blog because even if no one reads it, you went to bed last night thinking about what you were going to say in public today. You had to organize your thoughts. You had to come up with a generous enough way to communicate something to someone else who voluntarily decided to read it. And everyone ought to do that. No one gets talker's block, so you shouldn't get writer's block. And the way you will become a writer is by writing. You don't have to write a lot. Just show up and write. And the way you become a better writer is by doing bad writing. If you do enough bad writing, you'll have some good writing slip through. That means that each of us has an obligation. If you see yourself as a generous person, an obligation to turn on some lights for someone, to open the door for someone, to connect someone, that we shouldn't be victims, we shouldn't wait to be picked, that we should figure out how to learn something and then how to teach something. And that's been my mission for a long time, and I'm thrilled to see that it's catching on, that the more people who do this, it's not the grassroots or the bottom, it's us. None of this is going to come from the ostensible top. It's going to come from us, each of us deciding to teach and to learn and to connect. And the last thing I usually say in an interview is make a ruckus. And what I mean by make a ruckus is not to disrupt or to make a commotion just for the sake of making noise. What I mean by making a ruckus is to upend the status quo in service of making something better. Because if enough of us care enough to make things better, then it can't help but get better. And learning is the first step in that journey. And you're listening to Seth Godin, and he has one of the most popular blogs in the world, which you can find at seths.blog. And there you can find all of his 19 best-selling books, including The Dip, Lynchpin, Purple Cow, Tribes, and What to Do When It's Your Turn, and It's Always Your Turn, and This Is Marketing. Seth Godin, his story, and in the end, the story of the story we tell ourselves here on Our American Story. we continue here with Our American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite recurring segments, our American Dreamers series, which is brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. 
And they're working hard in Washington, D.C. and state capitals across this country trying to work for policies that help small business owners become bigger business owners and get their part of the American dream. And now we bring you a powerful immigrant story. My name is Gladys Gonzalez, and I was born and raised in Bogota, Colombia. My life hasn't been easy, and maybe because of that, I learned many lessons. I have learned that life can change from night to day, for better or for worse, like it happened to me when I was working in Colombia and I was so happy there. I had a VP position for a bank with headquarters in New York at the time of the drug dealers' war. In 91, the first drug dealer had to come to the States in extradition. Our view is the right approach is to bring to justice narcotics traffickers, to uh, coordinate and cooperate as best as we can with Colombia. The drug dealers said for every drug dealer that you send to the United States, we are going to kill seven Americans or people that work for Americans. And at that point, the bank decided to close business in Colombia. I had been working for them already nine years. It was a night life. My salary was in dollars, so I had a very good life. I had time to share with my family. It was beautiful. But unfortunately, I had to leave the country. So I decided to move to Utah. I really had a hard life in the United States at the beginning. I had this hope that because I was a executive in an American bank in Colombia, I will be able to get a good job soon here. But it didn't happen. I didn't have an MBA. I didn't have a title from the United States, only from Colombia. So I ended up cleaning floors. And for that, I was very qualified. <laughs> I started from the very bottom of the ladder. I had three jobs at the same time. One of my jobs was taking care of people with disabilities. When I was finished with that job, I would go to my second job, that was to clean offices. Then I would go home to sleep for a couple of hours and get up the next day to start my routine again. On Saturdays, I had my third job, delivering bundles of newspapers to kids, carriers, so they could drop the newspapers in their neighborhoods. I learned firsthand how hard the life of an immigrant could be. Many times I remember my kids telling me, Mom, what would have been worse for us to stay in our country facing the drug dealers and guerrilla war 
or moving to USA to face this tough life. And I will tell them, don't worry, we will make our way out of this someday. We just need to be patient. I got to the conclusion that only having a business, I will be able to succeed. And I started looking what type of business I could have that will help me to succeed. So I started by what is not available in Utah. And I thought, hmm, there is no a Hispanic newspaper here. So probably that's what I'm gonna do. So I just started the newspaper. And the first newspaper <laughs> took us a month to do it. So you can imagine how fresh the news were. Since the beginning, my dream was integration. So I decided, okay, we will have bilingual editorials. And so I thought, how can I make people start placing advertising? And I said, I need to get a couple of companies that are powerful here. So I went to visit with them and I told them, I will donate the full page in my newspaper. You don't have to pay me anything. But if you wanna outreach the Hispanic community, I will give you the ad for free, but you gave me the ad totally ready. And for them, what's a good deal? So they say, okay, let's do it. My next challenge came when I didn't have cash flow. So I started thinking, okay, I will have to close the newspaper. And at that point, I visited with late Senator Pete Suazo. And I told him, I have to close the newspaper. And he told me, no, you cannot do that, Gladys. That's the voice of the community. So he told me, how much money do you need? And I said, $10,000 cash flow. So he told me, have you been rejected by any bank? And I said, yes. Do you have a letter? Yes, I do. And he said, well, that's all we need. There is an organization called Utah Microenterprise Loan. So we can apply with the letter of denial. You do a business plan and I'll help you to present to the committee. I got the loan and the day that I got the loan, I took a photocopy of the check and then at night, I wrote an outline of my vision of what will be a business center resource for minorities, where people will be able to get education, how to write a business plan, how to apply for loans. And at the same time, I will team up with banks to have source of capital available for them. In 2002, when Pizzuazo died, I decided that I wanted to honor his legacy and I asked an authorization to his family to use his name and to create the Suazo Center nonprofit. 
and we have served between seven and 8,000 companies since the inception of the center. One of those companies is actually a change of nine supermarkets. It is owned by a Mexican woman and we helped her with the first little store and later on when she wanted to open the first big supermarket in a Latino mall. A team of eight people were helping her to create all the business plan and she got a, a loan for 700,000. Today, she gives employment to over 500 people. For me, the American dream is not about what the government does for us or who is the president. For me, it is about contributing our talents to worthy causes. It's about alleviating the suffering of those in need. It's about being a valuable part of the country that is now our home. It's learning the language and not having fear of expressing ourselves, even if we have a strong accent. I consider myself that I have fully lived the American dream. I continue living the American dream. And you've been listening to Gladys Gonzalez, founder of the Suazo Center, which helps Hispanic entrepreneurs create their own American dream. And you can learn more about their work and support them at suazocenter.org. That's S-U-A-Z-O center.org. Gladys's story, so many immigrant stories. I know my grandfather's story, a pizzeria in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and my grandfather on the other side, Lebanese, an embroidery factory. Businesses help fuel the American dream for both of them. And both, by the way, struggled as immigrants. And it is no easy thing to move from another country to a new country, learn the language, oftentimes lose your credentials. Gladys was, a, was an executive at a bank and came to the country, and that expertise and experience just wasn't honored. And so she was cleaning floors, but with patience and with diligence, ended up living her own version of the American dream. A great immigrant story, Gladys Gonzalez's story, and a great American dreamer's story. Here on Our American Stories, and send your American Dreamer stories to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. We know they're out there by the millions. Your American Dreamer stories, your family's story, your immigrant story, here to OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, and some of our favorite storytelling involves music and musicians, because music in the end, it's more than the soundtrack to our lives. Emotionally, we connect to music like no other form, 
in our lives. And it just brings us immediately back to time, to places, to relationships, and so much more. You've been just listening to the fine guitar work of Justin Johnson. And if you spent any amount of time on YouTube, chances are you've seen him playing his signature shovel guitars. Justin recently sat down to show us around the fretboard, and not just as a musician or a YouTube sensation with hundreds of millions of views, but as an entrepreneur and an innovator who was born to share his art with this world. I can remember still very clearly the first time I ever really just got uh, hit by the urge to want to play blues music. And um, it led from, you know, when I first picked up the guitar, I started getting into bands like, uh, you know, Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix. Those were probably my two biggest early influences on guitar. And uh, that, of course, uh, led me to tracing back, you know, the roots of where that music came from and uh, really getting, uh, you know, versed in, in like, you know, what inspired this music? This music's so good, but like, how do you even come up with this kind of music? What what are those musicians' uh, inspirations? And especially with uh, Hendrix uh, learning about like Lightning Hopkins and uh, John Lee Hooker, uh, R.L. Burnside, you hear a lot of uh, Hendrix riffs and R.L. Burnside's uh, early music, especially uh, that Hill Country Blues album that R.L. Burnside uh, recorded. But, you know, I just love the idea. There's something about just the how simple blues is, but how it's all inflection. It's like a lot of that a lot of that uh, John Lee Hooker and Lightning Hopkins. It's just so simple. My name is Justin Johnson, and I am a guitar player uh, through and through, um, especially blues guitar, slide guitar, I uh, love uh, bluegrass, roots music, basically any type of guitar music, it's all, it's all music to me, and uh, I love it. I've been playing music and been a music fan my entire life. And uh, my grandfather, he was a conductor. He was in the army band when he was in the military and then uh, conducted music his whole life, uh, conducted high school band. My mom was a DJ, uh, and so that really helped me absorb a lot of different styles of music throughout my life. And, um, you know, when I was a kid, I'd, I'd try to basically bang around on anything I could get my hands on and make some music out of it, whether it's a piano, we'd have a piano sometimes, uh, different places, we moved around a lot, and uh, I had the trumpet, baritone, I'd play uh, in school, and I uh, loved those, but never really, uh, you know, just became obsessive about it until I picked up the guitar for the first time. And uh, once I once I got my first six string guitar, it just became uh, an obsession. I, I couldn't put it down. Uh, I couldn't I couldn't leave it alone. If there was any possible moment when I could be playing, practicing, learning songs, writing songs, uh, that's all I wanted to do. And and uh, I guess the rest is history from there. That's all I've done since then. It was my my first job was playing music. And it's something I've done professional since since then, basically. 
I think it was a B.B. King quote that always stuck with me about blues music where he said, um, you know, he's comparing blues music with jazz music and he, and he compares it to cooking where he says, well, with blues music, you're cooking with less ingredients, uh, which means you gotta, you gotta be a better chef basically, or, or you gotta do more with the ingredients that you have. And, um, you know, like in that, in that style, basically you're, you're using a lot of what's called a, a like pentatonic harmony or pentatonic scale where it's it's a lot of uh it's basically five notes and you just repeat those but if you just played those notes it wouldn't have uh it wouldn't sound like blues at all you know it's it's about what you do with those notes and and playing uh the inflections that that make you feel something so those are, even those three notes, you can do so much. And that's the that's the thing I love about blues. You know, a lot of a lot of blues music is what they call twelve bar blues, where you have a a musical form that's 12 measures long and it keeps repeating and and a, most blues music is the same chord progression um different keys and and in a lot of ways you could say it's sort of like the, the same song uh largely you know but every person plays it differently and every every artist plays the same song generally uh totally differently each time they play it and uh, that's that's just like jazz music. Uh, that's one of the things that always inspires me about blues music is how when a genre is based on feel and and the soul, it's never the same because that that artist is feeling something different every time they play it. And if they're in touch with with their emotions and they're able to to express their emotions, you're always going to get a different performance every time you hear the same song. You've been listening to Justin Johnson, and when we come back, we're going to continue with his storytelling about blues and his playing. You're listening to him playing right now, and when we come back, you'll listen to more of one of the most beloved guitarists in this country, uh, talking about his craft, his life, and the music he loves. This is Our American Story. Turn to the story of Justin Johnson here on Our American Stories. The guitarist extraordinaire and YouTube star. Google his name and you will be impressed by what you see. And by the way, 
He did all of what he did as an independent artist without any label support. And that's the miracle of modern technology. You don't need a gatekeeper to get you out there. He's a compelling artist and needs no help. Let's return to Justin and his story in his own words. The first guitar that I ever played was actually an old Stella. And um, I remember long ago, my mom told me that, uh, I I thought she told me that it was her mom's or that it was passed down from her family. Um, Recently, I think she said that she's not quite sure where that guitar came from. So I don't know. I don't know where this mystery guitar came from, but it had been around in our family, sort of sitting in the corner of the room uh, with, with one string on it. It was kind of just like a wall ornament. But uh, I remember playing it and picking it up, uh, you know, and getting curious about guitar and um, playing. Uh, I remember the first song I think I played on it was Louie Louie on the on one string, you know, just kind of uh, it had a bent neck. So like. Just playing that, uh, you know, open uh, fifth fret, seventh fret. And and it was out of tune, like I said, with one, one old rusty string on it. But. Something about that really uh, appealed to me, and I loved the 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 just the way it looked and sounded, and the feeling came really naturally to me. And plus, guitar, I think the fretboard is a very visual instrument. You know, unlike uh, like I said, a lot of other instruments like the trumpet and baritone that I played, where uh, something about pressing those uh, the the keys down, you know, on the or the you know the the notes down on the trumpet and baritone, it didn't quite feel as organic to me as far as expressing the sounds. Um, piano's really great and linear and visual, how you can see all the notes laid out in front of you. But there was just something about the inflections you can get from actually touching the strings with your fingers, uh, both plucking them and also fretting them, and the way you can add vibrato and you can bend strings and you can use a, a like a bottleneck slide and, and, and get all of those vocal inflections. And that's something I couldn't do on the trumpet or the uh, piano or any other instrument I played. And it it felt much more intuitive to me than even talking, which, you know, never came naturally to me either. Um, so in a lot of ways, the guitar very quickly became the thing that I could express myself on better than I could express myself in any other context in life. When I started playing live, is actually, uh, like I said, my mom was a DJ, but she also owned a bar uh, in a little town called uh, Southport, North Carolina. And um, at this bar, she had an open mic night, uh, and uh, um, I started playing at the open mic and started uh, playing at, at like a blues jam there. And she would also, uh, you know, ask bands that came through if if I could sit in with them. And this was maybe a year after I started playing. And um, I just, you know, I love blues music and I love the way the blues music too is so accessible that if you can solo and you learn the, the you know, the fundamentals of, of improvising and blues music, you can sit in and, and have fun at least and still have it sound good enough for an audience to listen to. But, you know, that's really where I started playing live for the first time was at my mom's bar. As I played over the next few years or the next like probably 10 years around that same area, um, regionally around coastal North Carolina, 
I uh, probably played in, you know, 10, 20, maybe more bands, everything from, uh, you know, big band jazz bands to uh, reggae bands, bluegrass, country, Americana, uh, a lot of like Almond Brothers jam bands, uh, Grateful Dead, you know, style bands, just basically anything and everything I could play in. I became, uh, I guess, kind of a hired gun in that whole region that if someone needed a lead guitar player, uh, I would get a lot of those calls and come in, and and a lot of times I didn't even know the set list until I was on stage playing it, and would uh, would just pick up whatever was going on and and run with it, and and I thought that was a great learning experience. It taught me a lot about music and a lot about how to how to use what I knew on guitar to fit into other genres. That still remains something that I do in my own playing, although mainly when I play live now, I'm playing as a solo guitarist, but I blend genres like that. might be playing a song that was traditionally maybe a bluegrass song or uh you know kind of like Appalachian style song and I might throw a little reggae you know uh, rhythm into it because I I'd associate those together and uh different things like that or or with blues I always no matter what style I play I play with a blues accent basically because that's the first style of guitar that really really uh dug its roots into my subconscious. When you learn a style of music, you uh, it's kind of like learning a, a second language. If you know, you start with the first language that you're born listening or you know speaking, and then let's say you learn a second language, you're gonna speak that language with an accent from whatever that first language you learned is. And and I think I always play music, whatever genre, with a blues accent. You can always tell that that's the style that that really hit home with me um, right off the bat. I think the first time when I, I really knew that the guitar was something different than other instruments I played and that maybe I had more of a propensity for the guitar and, and could really own that in a way that I, I couldn't own other instruments or hadn't owned other instruments was maybe a few days even after I uh, got my first six-string guitar and this was, um, I was, I don't know, uh, 15, 16 maybe at the time. And uh, I remember my mom walking past the door and she thought the radio was playing. And I was surprised that it was me practicing since I would just gotten the guitar, um, you know, maybe a few days a week earlier. And it wasn't like what I was playing was that impressive, but I think it was the fact that it actually sounded musical uh, surprised her and it also surprised me since I didn't have any muscle memory on the instrument yet, since that's something you really have to practice to get. And it was just, you know, to me that, that was telling me that this is something that's coming intuitively and that it, it works with what I'm doing. 
naturally. But you know, as far as getting out and and just making myself known and finding out who I am as a guitar player and how I how I fit into the the world of music. I've always been more concerned about how it makes me feel than how I stack up against other people or who else is out there. And I think that that, if you if you develop that mind frame about things, uh, it doesn't matter how competitive other people are. If you're competing with yourself, you're always, I feel like, going to work harder and you're always going to become more original. Um, if you compete with other people, I think you end up trying to sound like other people in order to become better than other people and I think that ends up making your voice a little less authentic at least that's what I, I feel and I feel like that helps me do what my goal is basically on guitar and any kind of music is for people to know that that's Justin Johnson when they hear it because it's what I feel when it comes to the, you know what, what I play on guitar is what I actually feel and what I want to come out of the instrument not what I'm trying to just put out there for uh, any other motivation, you know? And you've been listening to Justin Johnson. And my goodness, what a storyteller. More than just a great guitar player. He said it felt more intuitive to play the guitar than the trumpet or other instruments. And that this was the best way for him to express himself in any context. Playing the guitar gave him his voice. It didn't hurt that his mom was around and encouraging him and that she owned a bar in South Carolina. Moreover, that he played a lot of types of music in bands across the North Carolina coast as a young man, but always he returned to that blues accent. And last, he had great words of wisdom. Compete with yourself. If you compete with others, you can start to sound like others or otherwise lose your authenticity. So true in life, not just in music. When we continue more with Justin Johnson here, on Our American Story. And we continue here at Our American Stories with Justin Johnson's story, a YouTube star and a, an extraordinary guitarist. He has a worldwide audience, and his videos have been seen by hundreds of millions of people. Go to YouTube, Justin Johnson. Just tune in and watch and listen. He was kind enough to sit down with Our American Stories to talk about his art and what makes him tick as an entrepreneur. This is a self-made musician. Let's return to Justin. Guitar playing has always been my uh, occupation, and uh, basically because it's such a passion for me that I don't want to do anything else, and uh, I, I want to make sure that anything that I do uh, business-wise in order to sustain you know, a, a living in this world has to do with music, so, so then I, I never get tired of working, and I'm always enthusiastic to uh, do more work, and you know, it's important when you're, when I'm playing music 
not to think about the business side of it. I don't like the idea of playing music or a certain type of music just because I think that someone else is going to buy it or something like that, or, or because it's marketable or because, um, you know, all of the things that I think the music industry becomes negative, negatively associated with, um, taking the art out and, and replacing that with some kind of business priority. But in order, you still have to make a living doing it. And it's very important, I think, to understand as a working musician or any kind of artist who wants to make a living making art and being creative that, you know, my philosophy is that you l look at what you do best and what is specifically your style and the thing that sets you apart. And the more you can do that, the more you're going to stand out and the more you can develop a, uh, I guess, an identity, uh, which ends up becoming a brand in that sense if you're selling something. And so um, for me, you know, over the years, it's it's developed in different ways. And it has a lot to do with me with uh, slide guitar, with roots music, with styles of music um, that not a lot of other people spend as much time as me uh, really uh, uh, trying to perfect, you know, in years and years and years of of working on it because, and I do it because that's what calls out to me and that's what makes me just endlessly curious. And, and, um, one of the things as far as building a business though, and, and building uh, a sustainable income from my music is that, uh, I've put out in addition to recordings, putting out instructional material because, uh, you know, as I was touring, uh, for for years and years, people on the road would ask questions after shows, and I'd I'd find that I'm explaining a lot of my playing techniques and a lot of these approaches to slide guitar and and you know maybe some unconventional roots instruments like the one string diddly bow or um, you know three string guitars uh, you know guitars made out of found objects different things like that that are uh, historical and in, in in every musical culture, but I would, so. Eventually, I started teaching workshops, and I started uh, realizing that I, I can explain things in a way that makes sense to people who want to know how to play these instruments and these styles, and that developed into me uh, creating DVDs and online courses, and you know, uh, and that's become a big part of my business as well. That's that's really come naturally from just talking about music and loving to talk about music and trying to answer people's questions when they have them. And, uh, you know, but it all comes together. I think that if, if you look at what you do as a musician and you want to try to make a business out of it, the best thing you can do is, first of all, split your business mind from your musical and artistic mind. Let those two exist independently of one another. And then try to look at the art that you do and, and the creative side of what you do and think in a separate mindset about how you can try to... Um, supply a demand for, for maybe what you do well in the world. there's a, it's a really magical time right now with the way that the internet has given artists the ability to develop their own audience um, without ever having to 
sign over the rights to their music to a third party to to um you know uh, a record label to to managers to agents anything like that um which you know it, there's certain challenges that come from trying to you know create a, a something like an online or social media following a youtube following um there's a uh, a lot of challenges in that because you have to do it all yourself and you have to learn how to, uh, you know, let's say record, uh, record videos, record audio, do all these things. Um, and it, and it's incredibly difficult to build up a fan base, you know, one person at a time, which is essentially what you're doing, whether you're a live performer, uh, on the road doing that, or whether, you know, you're online doing that, trying to get people to watch your, your videos and, and your recordings. But um, it's it's been a very organic process for me building up my audience online, which which right now is you know um, well over a, a million fans and subscribers across social media. But it's all to me. My philosophy of it is just like my philosophy with with the business side of what I do. That if I focus on putting out the best music that I can put out and just doing exactly what I feel like is authentic to me and not compromising that and, and not being discouraged if it, no one listens to it or hears it. And I just keep putting it out there and keep trying to improve what I do that the following will naturally come, you know, with what, with what I do well. And that's exactly the plan we we've had from the beginning. And, and uh, it's just naturally occurred very organically that, you know, people enjoy what I'm putting out and I feel really blessed by it. I feel every day I get to wake up and think about, you know, I get to do what I love doing today and that's all that I need to think about. And it's such a blessing and it's there because there are people out there, you know, online that want to see what I'm doing next and, and that want to be part of that, that creative process and learn from it. And, and, um, it's just it's it's such a blessing to have that kind of audience in this day and age where you know like I've never signed any rights over to my music uh, I've never uh, worked with you know I've never signed over anything to a record label it's all been organically uh, through touring and through um, posting recordings and videos online that, that I've been able to develop my audience and it's something I think that's totally changed not just the music industry but, uh, you know, probably every industry, uh, every creative industry, at least, um, that, that people can, uh, you know, sustain themselves from their home or from wherever they want, from the road, and, and stay in touch with people all over the world. And, you know, I, uh, I put a, a, a video out uh, yesterday, let's say, online, a, a musical performance and video on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and, um, you know, just thousands and thousands of people from all over the world get to see that immediately and it's it's just amazing to me and you're listening to justin johnson a self-made musician and by the way guitar playing has always been his occupation these things are possible folks and you're almost getting a primer on how to do it and most importantly it's follow your actual passion inside that musical space and then focus on two things music separately business separately what great advice have the two of those things operate separately he cautions and by the way it's a caution right you don't want to blend the two 
And by the way, he's right that it's a magical time right now. Artists have the ability to find their own audience without any gatekeepers. When we come back, more with Justin Johnson here on Our American Story. Turn to the story of Justin Johnson, an incredibly talented musician who created a name for himself by simply following his passion. Let's return to Justin's story. First of all, I always try to do something new. I love the idea of playing something that, that's never been played before, whether it's a song or whether it's an instrument. And instruments, just I've got such a, a like a passion for them to that uh, I, is insatiable, and I want to try every new stringed instrument I can find. And so when I do that, a lot of times I, I try to like, you know, record something, uh, both audio and video and share it with my fan base online. And when something obviously catches people's attention, like it does mine, uh, then I also, uh, I'll notice, well, Hey, you know, no one's offering this instrument right now, um, in the way that, that, um, I can, or that I want to. And, and so I'll start, I started actually building my own instruments and, uh, working with different builders around the world at different times to develop new guitars and, uh, new models of guitars, new types of stringed instruments. And, um, I think by far the most popular instrument that I make, uh, that I've offered this way is my, uh, signature three string shovel guitar. That, like I said, that started out with a uh, a video. Someone, when I was on the road down in Mississippi, a fan came out and and uh, gave me a, th- a three string guitar that he made out of a shovel, and um, I had it for a couple years and uh, performed with it on and off, you know. And I've made made some videos with it. There was one particular video that I made. Uh, with my wife Nikki, who who recorded the video in our backyard uh, a few years ago, and we just I made something up on the the shovel guitar, improvised something, and we posted it, and the video just went wild. It it went it went completely viral, and uh, that original video post we did on Facebook alone has uh, well over 40 million views now. Thank you. 
So people never seen, you know, most people had never seen an instrument like that. Uh, and, and we had so many requests to uh, offer it and, and people wanting to purchase it that we ended up putting it into production. And, and we originally worked with a, a, a couple different builders. And then, like, uh, eventually I started building it all myself. So um, currently, you know, have a, a guitar workshop in addition to the recording studio and everything else that we do that um, a lot of my time is spent in the workshop building instruments. I build uh, my signature three-string shovel guitar. I build uh, cigar box guitars, which is a, sort of like a fretted version uh, that's uh, three strings. Um, I've built four-string guitars, um, one-string diddly bows, which is like a traditional roots instrument that's about as simple as a uh, guitar can get. It's one string. You play it with a slide. I'm about to release a, a, a new instructional course on the one-string diddly bow. Um, I'm working on that currently, right now, actually. Should be done soon. My signature whiskey barrel guitars, which um, is a, a six-string guitar that um, I've worked to develop with a builder. Uh, it's called Big D Guitars. He's up in Chicago. And um, thinking about different ways you can approach you know like there's always the argument of tone woods and like what kind of woods a guitar should be built in, out of and i'm always a big fan of the idea that um in addition to it just being a good tone wood i feel like if the wood has a story or makes you feel a certain way or or you know just looks and and you know something about the history of an instrument or the history of the components of the instrument it brings out a special kind of mojo factor uh when you play it and it's something that, that inspires you, not just the way it sounds, but, but just inspires you to, to think and, and play a certain way. Both uh, Big D uh, and myself uh, both kind of had the same idea separately, which is wanting to build guitars out of whiskey barrels, uh, because most whiskey barrels are made out of oak, and it's a it's a nice hardwood anyways. It, it, it's a good tone wood, um, but especially the idea of the whiskey, you know, sitting in these barrels and aging in these barrels, uh, and then making a guitar out of this you know the guitar has been soaked in whiskey and the guitar has this kind of story and this feel to it and it sounds great and so um and then the the aesthetic of it too having the um you know the brands of the whiskey and and just that spirit of it i don't know it it it, it has a a very cool factor that that inspires a lot of people myself included and so that's another signature guitar that i i offer uh, is my whiskey barrel guitars but you know, I just love that that idea. Again, this all kind of came naturally out of just what inspires me and 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 combine that with what people have responded to over the years in a way that that's like, okay, yeah, if if you guys want to if you guys want to me to make this available and put this into production, I'm always about that and I always love the opportunity to do that with people and collaborate with people and offer it to my fans. 
if you're a music fan and you want to make the biggest difference in supporting, you know, the kind of music that you love, um, I, I can't encourage you enough to support your local music scene. Um, that is where music starts. You know, it starts with the people around you encouraging you to continue to do what you love. And so uh, encourage everyone to get out there, uh, go see some bands locally, buy their recordings if they have them and uh, make them feel good if it's something you want to see them do, uh, you know, in the future. Because it, it's tough out there as a, uh, as a musician trying to make a living, and it's always the fans that make the difference. All of my music is available at justinjohnsonlive.com. It's, of course, it's on iTunes, you know, uh, Google Play, all of that stuff. Um, my store is justinjohnsonstore.com. I've got lessons uh you know six six part lesson on blues guitar that's slide guitar finger picking hill country blues uh you know delta style blues and then also uh, i've got my uh you know signature instruments as well and you can again find out all about that and my uh performance schedule at justinjohnsonlive.com and then again if if you like what you see Subscribe to my uh, YouTube channel. Check out all my videos. I'm always putting out free music and free lessons on there. And uh, it's, a good, it's a good place to keep up with everything that I'm doing.
Hey, this is Justin Johnson. You're listening to Our American Stories.